Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're joined again by Praveen Varshney of Varshney Capital. I'm very happy to welcome Praveen back to the show, as on this episode, we speak to one of his big passions, and that's real estate. Praveen started his career in finance, focusing on resource deals, tech deals, and really anything public venture capital. But about 14 years ago, Praveen tells us that he realized they needed to start diversifying into more cash-flowing opportunities. Now, not all real estate is created equal. And in one of Praveen's stories, he actually tells us about how he lost money on a real estate deal, which in today's age, you kind of go, wow, how did that happen? So you'll hear about that, but we'll also get into some of his main focus of really where he likes to be investing, and that's in multifamily residential real estate. We also touch on how these deals are structured, whether it be a GPLP limited partnership or a corporation or a REIT, There's a few different ways that this can be done. And then with that, the partners and the manager have a different split or a call to the cash flows and to the equity accumulation. I think it's only fair to say that there's always going to be a risk to real estate investing. One thing I've recently learned about is that the amount of work a competent and keyword competent general partner or investment manager must go through to close on a multifamily project or just really any commercial real estate project is huge. A proper due diligence list is extensive and timing is crucial to getting a deal done. I make this point as it's important to know if you're trusting a manager with your money or if you're planning to gather a group of investors and go buy a commercial property yourself. So I invite you to learn from Praveen as he's bringing over a decade of experience and a ton of passion to this episode. I also wanna thank Praveen again for joining us a second time and thank you for listening. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Praveen Varshney. Praveen, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you. Our focus today is real estate, and I'm I'm looking forward to getting into it. Thank you, Corey. Uh, great to be back, and I appreciate the chance to uh, tell you some more about this area that I just absolutely love, being real estate. Yeah, yeah. It's on our first podcast, first interview we did, we touched on a number of different topics, which I highly suggest everybody go back to and and listen to. But one of the things that we finished on was we touched on a bit of the real estate that you do. So I thought it'd be great to have you back on and talk about everything that is and why it's such a big part of your portfolio and all things real estate. So what do you say I'll hand it over to you to maybe frame up the discussion of why you got into real estate originally? Great. Thank you. Yeah. So initially, as you might recall, my career started off and has primarily been in the public capital markets in Canada. And we've had some, you know, fortunately, fantastic success working in the mining resource sector with companies like Mountain Province Diamonds, operating diamond mine in northern Canada, another company called American Mineral Fields. Both companies, you know, started off at very low share prices and, 
you know, hit highs of $9 and, and $30 respectively. So a uh, good ride. Yeah. And then uh, we'd expand into other sectors like gaming and technology. We were the first investors and clearly contacts helped grow that company to 220 million revenues and it exited for 450 million cash or 1250 a share. And it was a company called Carmana in Victoria that we built into Canada's largest solar company that was the uh, accidental serendipitous start to us focusing on social impact investing. So we were basically about half in resources and the other half in these operating tech social impact companies and zero in real estate. And then about 14 years ago, I brought up with my father and my younger brother, my two business partners at Varsity Capital, that we really need to get serious about real estate because, you know, some of the wealthiest families on the planet, pretty much in every country, it was all from real estate. And, you know, we we're doing great with our capital gains from these equity plays in the markets. But, you know, cash flow is, is a challenge for everybody, and including us. Like, you know, how do you make sure that you've got enough cash flow to pay the monthly rent, bills, food on the table? And real estate also seemed like a great way to then create not only cash flow, but long-term intergenerational wealth. And then uh, just a quick story. So a friend of mine in the Seattle EO chapter, and EO is the largest group of entrepreneurs in the world with 195 chapters, 61 countries, 14,000 members. I actually recommend anybody who's an entrepreneur consider joining. I've been a member of the Vancouver chapter for 22 years, but my friend James, he had started three businesses there and he learned from each one before he started the successive one. And his first one was a tech consulting company which did fine, but like any business that's trading time for dollars, it was tricky to scale because, you know, as you're trying to service a client, you know, you're also trying to hunt for the next contract. And ultimately he sold it and had a, a small exit. But, you know, one of the things he learned was it was tough to operate a business and manage payroll without recurring revenue, right? Two of my favorite words in the English language. <laughs> so his uh, second company was a, a tech product company, SaaS business model which was great because he had recurring revenue and had a bigger exit. And then uh, his third and current company, he took everything he learned from this prior two and asked himself the question, what's the ultimate recurring revenue? And he landed on real estate because <laughs> when you own a building, you got monthly rent coming in. Mm-hmm. And so he's been building a company that's developing micro suites in Oregon and, and Washington state and renting them out. So James's journey just kind of reiterated to me as well that as a family, we had to get uh, into real estate. So winding clock forward, we're about 10% in mining and resources, 40% in sort of tech and social impact, and, and you know, 50% in real estate. That's where your Varshney Capital's portfolio is now, as you're saying? Correct, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, that's a big move from zero over, uh, to 50% over about, did you say 14 years? Tiger 21, it's a global group of you know, peer-to-peer learning for high net worth investors. And Michael Sonnenfeld, who's the founder, he just did a recent interview where he was recommending that the members stay 70% in equity. And the equity composes of real estate, private equity, and public equity, and in order of decreasing allocation. So basically, he was saying that some of the wealthiest people on the planet should also focus on real estate. (laughs) Now, one of the questions I have about real estate is, and just at a high level, is talking about the different categories, right? And I mean, we can, we look across the board, but really from trailer parks to high-end hotels and everything in between, you've got a physical property there, but each one has its interests, nuances, its, its capital structures. Can you provide some detail on that and maybe get into some of the things that you're interested in? 
for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, we kind of you know, worked in and initially dabbled in, but, you know, and worked in pretty much all the asset categories in real estate and, and they all have their pros and cons and risk and rewards. And so, you know, we initially got involved with a bit of development. So with my cousin and my uncle in Vancouver, we'd build a house or a duplex and sell it and you know, you'd make good money. And I actually got involved in my first condo tower in development. So development is a different animal. It takes a lot of holding power, capital, work, risk. Talking to somebody yesterday about, oh, we should buy some, you know, raw land outside of this, I forget which city, because when the city expands, you know, it'll be worth a lot more. And, and that is a great play, but, you know, it's tricky because it can take a long time. So you need the holding power Hotels is another asset category, and, and so one of my first hotels was in Whistler, and actually I lost a bit of money on that one. And it was interesting, you know, Whistler, beautiful place to be, but it's a you know recreational market with you know shoulder seasons, the spring and fall aren't as busy. And so one of the things I learned is a, a recreational hotel is very different than a downtown business hotel. Mm. And a hotel is also not really a pure real estate business. It's more of a business backed by real estate. And so mm-hmm. with a hotel, you got to market, brand it. And we had a restaurant and a spa. Each one of those businesses on its own is kind of tricky. <laughs> so when you touch on that, when you speak to that, you know, it's an interesting one. You think about a hotel as a real estate play, but then stepping back, that business there must have been the issue that led you potentially losing money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, it's any real estate building, whether it's a hotel or an apartment building, you know, the way I explain it to people, it's like a mini business in the sense that there's only two things you can do is drive the, the costs out of it because every dollar saved goes straight to the bottom line and then drive the revenues and then increase net income. And so, you know, if there's not enough net income coming in or if you're losing money, well, you also got a mortgage you're paying, right? So now you got to like cash calls to feed the thing. So mm. it'd be tricky. Now, with these investments, you talk about cash calls, and I start to think that you've got some form of shareholders agreement, you've got some form of, of investors in, whether it be a GP or a GPLP or a corporate structure. How are your investment deals structured? And does that change by asset class or by real estate class? Yeah. So typically, because you know, we're not lenders, so you know, we don't provide mortgages, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of people that do that. So we're, we're equity investors. So Often we'll set up a corporation, a small private company where two, three, four people or you know, a handful of shareholders will fund it to buy the asset. And then that one company will own that particular asset. Another structure that's uh, quite common is a limited partnership, general partnership structure. So an LP, GP structure. And so there's a, a lot of, you know, they call them syndicators, syndications of these. So you can you know, take a big asset and sell it in smaller chunks. And so you'll also see publicly listed equities, you'll see, you know, REITs, everybody loves cash flow. And so REITs are popular investments because if they are being operated well, you can not only get the cash flow, but you can also get the capital gains. So it's uh, the holy grail investing, you know, growth with yield. Mm-hmm. Now with the, um, I mean, a REIT being a publicly listed opportunity, if in your private opportunities and whether it be a GPLP or a corporation, do you have a preferred structure? It's partly driven by the dollars required. And so just kind of going back to, to, for example, some of the other areas of real estate. So one of my favorite warehouses and, you know, warehouses, Amazon and online e-com, you know, it's just a big growth area. I was just chatting with somebody about a lot of these smaller malls and cities that aren't doing so well anymore. So we believe a lot of them probably turn into, you know, last mile delivery warehouses, right? Because there's enough people 
on them. So I had bought a warehouse just outside of Ottawa with uh, two families. So we just set up a company and the three families funded it and we bought it. The We'll come to this a little bit later uh, in more detail, but you know, with apartment buildings, multi-residence that we like to focus on, a lot of those are limited partnership, general partnership structures. Okay. And so that would be kind of your, uh, or I guess it sounds like you got a balance there, the corporation or the, the GPLP. And, and it's, I guess you just kind of figure at the time, there's not a major win taking one over the, versus the other. Yeah, no, it's, it's more about, you know, again, like the amount of capital needed and also who do you want to target as investors? Yeah. Okay. Now, something that I, I want to hear your opinion on is syndicators. And I mean, there, there seems to be a fair number out there who can provide deals. They take you know, an equity chunk, they break it up and they get a lot of people to write checks into it. They can have bad names. The syndicators, the ones presenting these opportunities can, can at times even you know, start knocking on the door of, of fraudulence. What should the GP or the leader of the syndication or the leader of the project avoid? And at the same time, what should the investors be looking for when investing in potential syndication deals? So it's no different really than when you're investing in say a, a tech company or you know or operating business. Like the focus should be entirely initially on the you know the operators, the management team. So, you know, who are they? You know, what's their pedigree and, and what's their track record and reputation? And so that's probably, you know, I said the paramount number one most important thing to focus on. And then secondly, you know, if you want to drill down, you want to maybe learn a little bit about the asset they're, they're working on. For example, another asset that we uh, had success in is RV parks, a good business model. Some people just want to live in an RV park, right? Mm. You know, commercial buildings is another interesting one. We don't really do a lot of commercial because again, with online and, you know, Amazon, et cetera, like, you know, restaurants and, and stores are turning over. And the only commercial that we favor is where the tenant is a doctor or a dentist because they're probably not going anywhere. And then the, on the structure side and, and the return side, it's an interesting conversation. So my father had taught my brother and I a long time ago that you should never focus on what someone else was making. It was a, actually a really good lesson because, you know, if, if you're happy with what you have, who cares what someone else is making, right? Because then, you know, you're always never happy. Like you're always mm-hmm. the other side of the, the, the fence. And so often with these syndicators, let's take an apartment building example, you'll see a a range for the GP where it could be maybe up to 35%. And then the balance is for the investors that are putting up the money needed to buy the real estate. And so some people may get hung up on the, the percentage. So for example, we have a, a company that we work very closely with and they're just crushing it. And you know they have a 35% split for the GP. So some of the people that look at this investment opportunity go, wow, that's just too rich, I'm out. And on the other hand, you know, I have, for example, a lot of doctors that love to invest into some of these opportunities. And, you know, when I tell them that, hey, these are things that we're investing in and, you know, this ring teams had this tremendous record of success, which is basically generating 20% per annum returns or higher. They go, where do I sign up? They don't even ask what the split is. <laughs> right. So, right. So that would mean that you know the sixty-five percent is enough there for the LP or the just the investors themselves to be seeing twenty percent after the managing partner is paid out. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's interesting. So I have a friend of mine that uh, he's a doctor in the states, but he kind of shifted into a different business. He actually has a podcast where he helps 
doctors and dentists help manage and invest their money, and he specifically focuses on retirement buildings. Hmm. Some of my friends who are doctors and dentists, you know, what I talked about and explained is on the scale of labor, minimum wage at one end, they're just at the other end of a higher form of fee-for-service trading time for dollars. And one of their concerns is how do they maintain this nice life and lifestyle that they're used to without eating up their capital when they retire? Oh, sorry. You, this is, you're speaking of doctors specifically. I mean, they're in essence service providers. Exactly. Exactly. Just a higher form, right? <laughs> to get paid yeah. a lot better for labor, <laughs> but they yeah. have the same challenge. And so when they retire, you know, how do you still travel and have a nice bottle of wine without having to eat up your savings? And so cash flow real estate to me is the best way. And Corey, here's another thing too. So you know, with uh, longevity, the last stat I saw was this next generation was going to be living to an average age of 108. Wow. So if everybody's going to be living, you know, that much longer, everybody is going to need a source of income that much longer. Forget just doctors, right? So how are people going to do that? Yeah. And I, coming back to cash flow real estate, interesting, my, my son, who's 17, grade 12, which had a, a good father-son conversation yesterday. And, you know, he's been sort of learning about real estate through us. Like we, we took him to Ottawa daughter, a couple of years ago and we did a tenant depreciation barbecue. So it was kind of cute to see, you know, these kids when they were younger, like flipping burgers for mm. the tenants. So they've been kind of learning about real estate. And yesterday he was saying, look, I got this kind of money, you know, saved up, whatever it was. And can I put it into a cash flow real estate deal now? And, you know, I said, honey, if you start now, you're going to be way further ahead down the road than, mm. you know, your father's going to start until much later. Wow. Yeah. The way, the way to get them started early, Praveen. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know, interesting you say that as a lot of questions are coming into mind for me right now, but one is tenant appreciation. And that is that you as landlords are business owners. And what I'm hearing is you're intentionally making sure they're happy and showing appreciation. You're not just taking their money on a month to month and saying, hey, you got to fix that too. Is that a differentiator that you use in your real estate business or do you find that across the board? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question because especially with, with apartment buildings, like, um, you know, we know a number of people who, families who've really focused in that area and have done very well, but some of them don't have the best reputation, right? They, that term slumlords. Mm. And so uh, it was interesting. We have two platforms that we invest in for apartment buildings and they both take a social impact approach to the building. So for example, the one company, the CEO and founder, you know, she's a, a mom and she puts her mom hat on. So she thinks about, you know, if I were living in this building, what would I want to see? Mm. And so one of the first things that they do is they change the lighting to make it brighter, cleaner, safer. Often the they may not be a playground or it's falling apart. So, you know, they, they put in a new one or fix it. The pool deck furniture, the barbecue are falling apart. So all those things, you know, get changed. The day they take over a building, they actually have a, a food truck and they show up and it's free food for everybody. And, and you know, tenants can't believe it. They're like, oh, what do you mean? Like no one ever does this kind of stuff, right? We never see an owner. And so they'll use that opportunity to introduce themselves and, and how they operate. And um, one of the things that I absolutely love is the, the two programs that they uh, do every year. So every July, and, and these are apartments in the States, so the school year is a little bit different than Canada. But in July, before the kids go to school, they have a, a free backpack and free school supplies program. So every kid in the building you know, gets a chance to pick up. Uh, it's like Christmas in July. You know, I want the Batman one. I want the Superman one, right? Wow. And, yeah, it's, a, it's a really heartwarming when you see this. And sorry, I failed to mention one other thing. Even with apartment buildings, you can stratify them. And so there's high-end class A, you know, more expensive rent for higher earn, income earners. Yeah. And then there's B and C, which are lower rent. 
And so we tend to focus on investing in the B's and C's because they're for the masses. And therefore, you know, you never have really any vacancies. There's always a line of, of people there. And one of the reasons, you know, I mentioned all the different asset categories, you know, hotels, apartment buildings, retirement homes, RV parks, commercial. But apartment buildings to me is the safest, the best for the risk versus return, because it doesn't matter what's happening with the environment and the economy. You always got to live. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that roof your head. And the, the second program is in December, we do a free rent program. So basically the local property manager who knows his tenants, you know, his community the best gets tasked to pick one family that will get free rent in the month of December. So hard month, bills are piling up, you know, no money for Christmas. Or when you, you know, the knocks on the door and you tell, you know, Mrs. Jones that she doesn't have to pay rent, you can just imagine all the hugging and crying. And it's not just the rent, you know, we'll show up with a lot of presents for the kids, that kind of stuff. Um, just last December, we had a, a story of this a sad story, this single mom with a couple of kids died and the grandmother basically adopted them mm-hmm. and living in one of the apartments. And when you walked in, there was no furniture. They basically had those, you know, those fold up chairs with the slats like that, you know, mm-hmm. like that was furniture. So uh, we were able to you know, give her a bunch of furniture. So it's interesting. You can actually take a social impact approach to these apartments we've been doing and do good and make a lot of money for investors, like 20% plus annualized. Like, so who wouldn't want that? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, that's so great to hear. I mean, it's actually capitalism with the heart and making a good return as well. So that's, uh, that's wonderful. Yeah, no, totally. And one thing, Corey, I'd love to point out too. So in the finance investing world, like we've heard that compound interest is one of the wonders, right? Like compound interest mm-hmm. over time add up. And with real estate, you know, they have this concept of refinancing your equity. And so for people who may not know what that is, so basically if your building has enough value added to it, worth a lot more, you can actually go to the bank and take a higher mortgage and use that money to pay yourself back tax-free and basically all your investment capital out of that building and basically own it for free. So for example, let's say we bought a building for 10 million bucks. Typically you'd get maybe 75% as you know, first mortgage debt from a bank. So seven and a half million, you put up two and a half million and maybe a bit of extra money to help fix it a bit. And over time, by decreasing the costs, firstly, and then increasing rents through a few different ways, and I'll come back to that in a second, but you can increase net income. And so now when you go to the bank and you say, when we got the loan to buy the building, we're making this much income, and now we're making a much higher net income, give us a higher mortgage. So they may give us a mortgage for 10 million, so the extra two and a half million we use to pay back a two and a half million bank is fine because the building's making enough cash flow to keep servicing it. So now, you know, we've basically achieved the holy grail of investing, which is passive recurring income with zero investment and zero time. Infinity returns. Infinity returns. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so I just love that. And so that's also what I tell some of these doctors and other investors is, you know, if you can get into a very strong management team, you know, that can operate and add value quickly finance out quickly. Once you get your money out, you can then roll it into another opportunity, another apartment building, and then eventually have a whole portfolio of small pieces of a bunch that are all giving you cash flow. That's how you're going to maintain that nice life and lifestyle when you retire or live to 108. Yes. Now, I want to get into that refinancing because that's part of a larger real estate play. And Mm -hmm. you mentioned of good managers who are able to identify an asset that's not overpriced come in and see that there's improvements to be made and then 
increase net operating income because correct me if I'm wrong, but every real estate opportunity when it's appraised, really they're going to look at the net operating income and say, here's what we're going to put our multiple on to give you a valuation. And when you're able to increase that net operating income, either by reducing your expenses or increasing your revenues, that's where you're able to refinance. And then it's a buy and hold. Are you looking to exit in doing that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because what I learned a long time ago from my very first partner that I bought a warehouse in Ottawa with uh, 14 years ago, and I'm going to come back to the warehouse in a second with the potential, but he basically said, yeah, his family just buys and holds forever. So you just want to take your refinance money out and then get the infinite returns. So that's sort of what I was taught. And so with the two apartment building platforms that we work with, one of them actually sells them. So they basically have a business plan to double equity in five years, 20% plus-ish returns per annum. And then they like to sell the building. And so then that way you've got not only your original money out, but a double. Mm-hmm. And this other company called Sermaya that we work with, that's more going to be buy, add value, refi out, and hold forever. And the apartment buildings, because of the safest asset class, it's one of the hardest ones to actually try and find opportunities in, especially in a market like Vancouver. Like the, yeah, the, I wanted to touch on that. Yeah, so we don't really do anything in Vancouver other than a bit of development. Like, so all these properties we're buying are in the States or, you know, Ottawa. But, you know, a lot of people were using Vancouver as an offshore bank account, right? They were just parking money in a safe mm-hmm. environment. So they weren't even chasing returns. So it's called a capitalization rate or a cap rate, like the return off the asset. But you're lucky if you could get like a three cap, you know, in, in Vancouver. And so, you know, smart investors like us, we can't compete with, you know, you know the dollars like that. So we have to look at other markets to find the opportunities. Are you seeing, and I've heard that we're at a point now where there's so much money being held by family offices and by the super rich that they're actually just looking for asset classes like real estate, multifamily, and the cap rate's almost irrelevant. They've got so much capital to deploy that traditional theoretical economics don't apply anymore. They don't care if they're paying a three cap. Are you seeing that? Is that true? Well, exactly. And that's what I just said earlier. Like, you know, that's why in Vancouver, it was hard to find any building for sale, let alone, you know, find one that made sense financially. And so, I mean, it's changed with our um, current government and some of the new taxes. So you're starting to see people try and sell them. But what about in other markets, though? Yeah. So we can focus. Excuse me, maybe another (laughs) to, to elaborate on that is with the amount of money and the identifying that it's such a good potential opportunity or returns in real estate in other markets. How do you identify a good deal and what's that starting point where you'd look and where would you walk away? Yeah, we tend to focus on cities where the job growth is because that's where the need for housing is. So that's sort of a starting point. And in, in any particular market, you can you know find sort of uh, inefficiencies. And so one of the key things in real estate is to, you touched on earlier, is to buy it right. Because if you overpay, that's a risk and it just takes longer to kind of you know, get your money out. And then one of the the best ways to get a good deal is to get it off market. So for example, in Vancouver, you know, there's a handful of families, they're getting a call from Colliers and CBRE, you know, if, you know, if there's a deal. And then when you get the, the brochure fax your office, it's kind of like the, you know, like the leftover stuff, right? So, right? so the trick is how do you become, you know, that go-to person in the markets that you're operating in? And so one of the best ways is to be a serious player that actually closes deals and doesn't waste people's time, right? So the cities we're in, we've kind of established that foothold where we're getting the deal flow and these opportunities. Because when I tell people in Vancouver, 
that I can find an apartment building where I'm going to double my money in five years. They're like, what do you talk about? <laughs> like, mm. that was too good to be true because, you know, the cap rate here is 3%. It's going to take you like 30 years to double your money. Mm-hmm. And then we also take sort of a concentrated approach. So we don't just try and buy an apartment building in, you know, this town and this city and, you know, spread ourselves too thin. Like we actually want to get to some scale in a market and then move to a different city. And that also helps you get that cost efficiency and get that seriousness in the community about being able to close. Yeah. And you know, you make a good point there. That's something that I've noticed Main Street Equity does as an example, who's a public listed non-REIT. They make it clear that they're a corporation and listed on TSX, but they really focus on clustering. So going in, identifying a building, a multifamily and, and buying numerous ones, perhaps on the same street. And that way they see efficiencies in management scale or as much as you can scale a real estate operation, that clustering helps that and helps drive the expenses down. Yeah, I know Bob Dylan's done a fantastic job. Um, My father knows him and he's kind of done what I'm describing primarily we've been doing in the States, but up here in Canada. And there's another company in Canada called Boardwalk Equities. And and so uh, these brothers have built something similar where it's uh, a lot of apartments across Canada. But yeah, we're finding Canada, it's really hard to find you know the value out of part milling models so we tend to focus in the states and just going back to one thing too on you know that, that appreciation so it's a really important point that you know when we refi it's not based on an artificial inflationary lift it's actually based on that increased net income right so sustain and so the three main ways to drive the top line revenue side is one you know when tenants uh, leases come up you renew them at the uh, market rates in the area and then um, the second thing i hadn't even you know, seen this before or heard of it, but uh, when we started investing in some of these about four or five years ago, but a lot of these BC buildings are kind of older and tired and undercapitalized or mismanaged, which is opportunity for the smart operator. <laughs> and so a lot of these buildings won't have in-suite washers and dryers. And so the last thing, you know, a mom wants to do is haul kids and coin and laundry to the basement or across the street. So we'll come in and say, look, we will install a washer and dryer at our expense because you can't afford it and just bill you back over time, increase rent. And so, uh, for example, let's say we charge an extra $50 a month. We'll get our CapEx back in, you know, like, let's say a year or less, but then we'll get that $50 a month basically forever. So if you got 100, 200, 300 units, that's a lot of extra cash flow. And the third thing is, again, a lot of these units are tired. And so we'll come along with an upgrade program and we'll say, hey, look, would you like new paint, new carpet, new counters, new appliances? No problem. You can't afford it. We will pay for it and then bill it back to you in, you know, maybe $150 a month extra. So similar to the washers and dryers, you know, we'll get our capital back in a longer period, but then we'll keep getting that extra bump in rent for a while. So th- those three things are primary drivers of driving the revenue side. Yeah, I see. Now with this, I mean, this all comes back to cash flow and what are your minimum expectations for returns? I mean, we touched on the lesson your father gave you earlier that, you know, you shouldn't worry about what somebody else is getting. And that's on the, perhaps the manager and investor split. But when it comes to the kind of returns that you would expect from a real estate deal, it sounds like you're hitting it out of the park with 20%, but what's a minimum or what should people not accept elsewhere? So I think, again, it's going to depend which asset class too, but you know, like for us, you know, cause you know, if you only got a, a dollar invest, right. And you're scarce resource of money, you want to try and get the most out of it. But at the minimum, end, you know, we're going to be looking for 13 to 15%. And then at the upper end, 20 to 25%, like that's a good sweet spot to be looking out for and, and right. very doable with real estate. And then from looking at that, 
I mean, it is generally lower risk, but what are the risks that you would look for in the real estate opportunities? And I know, you know, again, we can go back and go across and we did touch on the hotels as having a, a risk with Whistler, but what other risks do you look for in, in real estate when you're investing? Well, having an eye out on interest rates in general is something to, to consider, right? And so, you know, we've been in a slow interest rate environment for a while. And a lot of people think it'll be still like that. I mean, you've got negative interest rates in some countries in Europe and there's you know, talk about negative interest rates, which if people don't know what that is, basically you pay the bank, right? To store money at the bank, yeah. which is just kind of crazy. Um, Bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, so we tend to manage that by building in a bump in rates into our numbers. So, the, you know, the cash flow still works. And because our focus primarily has been these apartments last four years, you know, I get asked, okay, so what is the risk? And I go, well, to me, I think the only risk really is you may not get a double in five years. It might take six or seven, right? Which isn't really a risk, right? Mm. No, is there a risk though? And, and I'm curious when you go back and refinance a deal after you've seen the equity appreciation there, is there a risk of being over levered in some of these? Well, that is definitely one of the, the potential you know, risks. And so we mitigate it because we've got a lot of in the revenue side. And that's the beauty of apartment buildings, right? Because let's say my parents, you know, a long time ago, they used to have like a, an extra house or two in the neighborhood and rent it out. So, you know, anything that's got one single tenant is riskier because if they leave and it takes you a while to rent it out, you got a vacancy and no cash flow and you're probably have to fund. And so with multi-residents, maybe you lose a tenant or two but it's never going to go totally empty, <laughs> right? So that's uh, another reason we love multi-residence apartment buildings because of the spreading out of the risk of the tenants. I gotcha. Yeah. And then, you know, you also there, you've got leased in, locked in income streams across a, a whole whole number of doors, if you will. So that really reduces your, your overall or kind of averages out that risk. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, maybe I'll share another story. Um, and so in Vancouver, there's something called Vancouver Startup Week. And so this was actually a year ago or two years ago. But anyway, I spoke on a couple of panels. And, you know, we had some really good, interesting chatter and you know, talk with a lot of you know, people in the audience and about, you know, Vancouver is a great place to build a tech company and lifestyle, that kind of stuff. But the topic of housing would always come up because it's hard to find a place to rent, let alone buy, because the market is so strong. It's really you know, expensive to get in. And so I'll get into the detail, but basically I made a case for renting versus owning. So, you know, I said, look, here's the deal. And the old me never would have said that. Like me a long time ago, I would say, oh, you got to buy your home and, you know, and scrimp and, you know, like that's so important. But firstly, your home should never be considered an investment. Mm. And we kind of got into this trap where this rising tide became almost like a game. Like people were buying pre-sales to flip, right? <laughs> so it was almost like yeah. gambling. And so, you know, your home should not be an investment. Two, you think you own your home, but you don't. The bank does for the next 30 years, <laughs> right? And as you're making your payments, it's quite frustrating because like you're generally just paying interest. Like it takes a while to like actually pay off the principal. And then debt is one of the things that keeps people up at night, right? I've had periods early in my career where I had debt and, you know, it's stressful. You can't sleep. Sleep is so important for health. And let's say you scrape together the small down payment to quote, buy something and maybe it's far from where you work. So now you've got a, you know, long stressful commute and maybe not the best in lifestyle, right? Cause you're spending 40, 45 minutes a day times two that could be used to exercise spend time with your family, you know, whatever. And then because of the debt and trying to service it every month, you know, you're probably brown bagging your lunch. You can't take a holiday. So again, you don't have the best life and lifestyle. So basically 
I was saying, why don't you rent closer to where you work? So now you can save that time and do all the fun stuff and exercise and time with family, take a holiday, don't have the debt to keep you up at night. And then the money you're saving for a down payment, put it into something that's going to give you cash flow, like an apartment building, right? And it actually reminds me of a story too. Uh, this is Warren Buffett. This is after 08, so a while ago. But, you know, he was sitting on a ton of cash and not investing it. And he basically said, you know what? But I sleep really well at night. <laughs> so it's yeah. all stuck in my head that, you know what? Like, yeah, you just got to avoid the debt and you know, try and sleep well at night. <laughs> yeah. And to that point of not buying, I have a feeling that we're moving into an era where younger generations look and they're like, why would I buy? You know, not even in thinking the economics, but mm-hmm. more thinking along the lines of, I would rather just be able to lock and leave and not worry. I would rather mm-hmm. the or I'm embracing whether I'm saying it or not, or conscious of it or not, I'm embracing the shared economy. And part of that is just renting a home and not having to worry about it. The same way that I rent that Uber when somebody drives me to wherever I have to go. And I think that we're actually going to be facing a complete paradigm shift where they're going to look at us all, the the newer generations, and say, you're crazy. Why would you bother owning a single home? That just seems like a, you know just a, a massive anchor. I think you're you're right. I think that's going to be part of a you know a global trend where less for all, all the reasons that we just went through. You know, say fine, let me just rent and it's more flexible and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Now we did touch on a bit. Uh, you, you've got two property companies that you know property partners that you work with, and you talked about some of the things they do to increase incomes and how they've really got a a pretty sophisticated or a strong management process. It sounds like one of them being Sermaya. Do you want to speak a little bit more about that? Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, for sure. So Sermaya Capital is a company that we started and it's focusing on multi-residences in high growth markets in the United States. And we have a project in Atlanta, which is a really interesting, exciting one. It's got a lot of acreage. It's got some long-term upside development potential for towers if we ever wanted to go there. But basically, it fits that social impact model of investing like this place has been run down absentee owner and we're going to be buying it and and closing on it uh, in a few months here can you put some scope around size yeah so it's um four million dollars equity raise and it's a structure with the lpgp structure where investors should get you know approximately 20 percent annualized returns and double their money and then we'll refi out and hold for the long term so exactly everything that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And how fast would you look to be refinancing? Like what's, what's an expectation around that? So five years or less is what we try and do. And so then it's not like you're waiting for everything at the back end. So along the way, as you're increasing income, you can actually go to the bank and get a higher mortgage. So it's not like it's all done at one time. Yes. Okay. And sorry, I cut you off there to, to jump in on that. But one of the projects there that you're working on in Atlanta is you said it's got some multiple acres and, and then we jumped in. But yeah, please carry on about Sermaya. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's uh, the first project in Atlanta is called Hidden Cove. And so it's a bunch of class B and C type buildings in this area of uh, Atlanta that's just growing and, and, and gentrifying. There's SkyTrain equivalent is coming out there. So it's a good market to be in. And so another thing was it's being mismanaged and the owner, the absolute owners are just kind of letting it slide. And so, you know, when you look at the economics, we should be able to as a double our equity in five years and refinance out and then hold forever. Hmm. No, it doesn't sound like a sophisticated or difficult business to be in, but I think that's a trap. Yeah. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, no, it, it sounds easy, but it's not, right? And that's what creates opportunities for, you know, the smart operators. So, for example, the first company we started working with, they had a, a building that a couple of teachers from Texas bought in Arizona. And they thought, yeah, hey, it'd be great to get some cash flow. <laughs> but they got day jobs and they're, you know, living far away and, and they didn't really manage it properly. And all of a sudden they started to get in trouble and they were undercapitalized and there's some, you know, things that need to be fixed. They didn't have the money, right? And so those are the ones that we love right? Because it's undercapitalized, mismanaged. And, and so it, it's not easy, right? And it's not easy to actually do it to scale and build a, a business that's going to sustain around this until you really, you know, focus on it. Yeah. And I see and have a couple hundred doors continuously bringing some cash flow in. And, and then I would add to that, having the management team and the management resources around to, to actually understand the ins and outs of whatever real estate class you're in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You, you can't just dabble because, you know, if you dabble, you probably will get hurt. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so Praveen, we've been talking for about, well, for some time here. And, you know, I want to just kind of recap on a few things of why or how you got into real estate mm-hmm. and how you've now moved it with about 50% of your portfolio in there and, and are such an advocate for it. I think for, for the younger listeners or for anybody who's looking to go buy a place, my take is the advice on not buying and investing in something that is going to yield some cash flow versus you having to pay your strata fees. I think it's the advice that everybody should be following or looking at first and foremost. And then we've also talked a bit about the kind of multifamily real estate deals that you're looking at and and what those are yielding for you. Are there any other points that you want to to leave with the listeners about real estate, whether they be as an investor or as somebody operating a real estate company? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as I was talking about my son and, you know, like, I think everybody should be thinking about how to get into this asset class and start getting cash flow that doesn't rely on them working for the long term, right? And then, you know, I have a friend of mine in in LA and, you know, he's made a lot of money in stock markets and I've been bugging him for years about getting into real estate and he finally is doing it. And it basically, it's never too late to start, but you just got to start, right? Mm. Well, I think with that, I mean, I think people should be looking at their alternatives and and, uh, realizing that there's... And you know what? Actually, I will chalk myself up to this. My own naivety of chasing 10x returns and unicorns in the early part of my career versus realizing the power of the wealth generator that real estate is. And so I think from hearing your points here and your advice there, uh, I would second that, yes, you have to get in and it's never too late. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing I would just say is, you know, it's it's a great asset class because like my business now, you know, I'm a CPA by profession. I'm in, you're more of a deal guy. And so I, I take my knowledge and experience and contacts and, and, and I put an opportunity together and an investment together. But if my two kids don't want to do what I do or they're no good at it, my business is really going to die with me. There's nothing really to transfer. But but real estate is that, you know, asset class you can pass along to future generations, you know, put it in trust, that kind of stuff. So that intergenerational wealth that, again, just one generation has got to start for the next generations. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I I just want to, I'm not going to let you slide on this one. I love the reality of your statement there that if they either don't want to do it or they're not good at it, at least they've got the real estate. I I find that kind of funny that you say that. I I appreciate the blatance of that statement. (laughs) That's great. Yeah. Well, Praveen, I appreciate you taking the time for a second time to be on the podcast. Our first one was so well received and I know this will be as well. Any final comments for the audience and where can people be following your work? Yeah, no. Uh, thank you again, Corey, for the opportunity to talk real estate. I just love talking about real estate. I must talk about real estate every day now, actually, quite frankly, to someone. But yeah, for, you know, for more information, 
you know, Samari Capital is a great place to start. They can just start inquiring where they live, you know, of other people that have been investing successfully and, and get introduced to, you know, smart operators. And yeah, it's good luck to everybody, you know, on their journey. Absolutely. And I'll say that people should definitely go to your website as well, Varshini Capital, and check you out there. And yeah, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. All right, Corey, have a good uh, evening. Cheers, you too. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.